Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 269, Why Be Normal? Recorded January 29th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. It only happens here on The Geek Rant Podcast. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroach, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Ossigineer. Wakeham. Hi, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and I'm glad you said recording now because I had totally forgot to start my recording until you said that. I'm like, oh, crap. So, but it's recording. Yay. Yeah. Recording. Actually, I just went over, I just hit my backup recording, so I hope I don't lose my my primary recording because I don't have the first couple of minutes of the show, just a couple of seconds, just because you said that. So, anyway. Hi, Miles. <laughs> hey, this is the special back, you know, uh, pre-release engineering version where you get to hear everything that goes on about recording these shows from our perspective. <laughs> no, if you heard everything, you'd have stopped listening a long time ago. <laughs> um, um, so there was a thing about a thing. That's right. This is this is the first episode. I forgot what I was going to say. The first episode of our second annual uh, fi- uh, fi- financial February theme month. We had decided um, with the birth of the Geek Rant podcast in 2016 that we would do some theme months, and <clears throat> and we did one of them, and we promised to do another one and didn't. Um, we'll we'll no, we didn't say what year we were going to do networking November, so <laughs> it is still on the books. <laughs> so we're still doing okay. Uh, so, but the the feedback for financial February was moderately positive, but mostly we just wanted to do another one. So. Um, we're doing it because we have the microphones and you don't. Uh, but this week we're going to talk about my, I, I titled this one. Seth asked me what's with the title. Why be normal? Well, the reason is, uh, I chose why be normal is because normal is broke without a plan. Um, and we don't want to be normal. We want to be Abby normal on this podcast. So we'll, we'll be talking a little bit. Uh, this show is going to be a little bit of philosophy. Our personal philosophy is fine of finance. And then we'll move on next week to some, some other more specific things, but, uh, we are not financial experts. We're just three guys trying to figure this stuff out. And, uh, hopefully you can help us figure it out and maybe we'll be able to help you figure out something too. So that's Yay, that. figuring. Uh, Seth, uh, was telling us before we started recording about a series, uh, a podcast series he's been listening to about the history of Rome. And I, I commented that, uh, would you said 170 episodes? I said, well, wow, that's dedication. And then, it, uh, and then I said, well, it's a thousand years. So I guess 170 episodes is really not that big a deal. So tell us a little bit about the history of Rome podcast. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was really cool. You know, I mean, I, I loved history in school. It was like my favorite subject. And so, um, I'm, I'm kind of a part-time history buff who's too lazy to put any effort into it, if that makes sense. But um, no, I finally caught up on all of my pod feeds that I listen to, which I don't have a whole lot because like I say, you know, the whole lazy thing from earlier, you can rewind if you missed it. Um, and so I caught up and I was like, I need a new podcast. So I searched, you know, and I, I came across like the history of Rome. That sounds cool. And so I went and looked at it and it, it like starts at the very beginning, you know, the um, Ramos and Romulus founding the city and some of the theories of where they came from, you know, talked about the uh, princes of Troy and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, you know, went through the seven Kings and we're going to start with the 12 tablets and it, it will cover all the way up through the bitter end. If you were a Roman, I guess. And uh, anyway, cool. It's the history of Rome. It's a, uh, it's a complete podcast and it's been done for a couple of years. So, but it's still there. And so I'm listening to it because you know, it's interesting. 
Yeah, I've mentioned it before on this podcast. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, Dan Carlin's hard, Hardcore History. And he'll take a topic like he did the rise and fall of the, of the Roman Empire, and he'll do like a six-part series, but each part is five or six hours long. So it's essentially a 30-hour audiobook released in, in five or six parts where he um, really dives deep into a subject. And I really like his, his monetary model, too. Uh, it, they're free upon initial release. And then he archives them, and you have to pay to get them out of the archives. Now the payment is like a buck a show; it's not much. Uh, so you can go back and listen uh, and purchase the Hardcore History archives, or you can subscribe now and and uh, check them out as he releases them. He may only do two or three shows a year because they're so in depth; they're hours and hours of shows. But uh, really, something that I have enjoyed, and in particular, his rise and fall of the Roman Empire was, I thought, one of the best uh, works on the subject for a non-historian. Uh, he calls himself not a historian, but a history enthusiast, and I, I like that approach. So uh, there's another thing. And, and Seth, what's the name of this uh, podcast? The History of Rome. Okay. And and you got a link to that? Because I'll, I'll post it in the notes. Um, I would have to dig one up. I just, you know, like I don't use an iPhone. I use, uh, what do I use? Podcast Addict. And you could just search for it, but I'll dig up the link and post it in there. Okay. While y'all are talking about your warm up stuff. It's the history of Rome.typepad.com is what I think uh, just came up. So have a look at that. And if that's the one you think it is, um, no, that's the New Revolutions podcast. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, you tell me. Um, so, and Miles uh, was telling us about this show previously that he was looking forward to it. We both got to watch it this week. Miles, tell us about your take on The Hunted. Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of more interested in your take on it because I've seen the British ones that led up to this one. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what you thought about it? All right. Well, the, the premise is that you, uh, you sign up for this game show and you agree and, and I, they don't give you the details, but obviously there's some, uh, a degree of pre-planning that, that goes ahead of time. Um, and so you, like, for example, I'm going to make some assumptions. They'll say sometime in the month of September. We will show up at your house and say, you're on the run, and you have an hour before people start chasing you. Um, and so they do several concurrent storylines. And if I remember correctly, you get $500 in cash and a debit card that they give you with a bank account that has a certain amount of money on it. You're not allowed to use your own finances. So you have, to, you have to use their money, um, yeah. which is you know definitely front-loaded to, to the trackers so that they know they can watch your bank account because they're giving you the bank account. Um, and then you have uh, what appears to be primarily retired or former uh, NSA, CIA, FBI agents doing the things, the work that they used to do when they were in the field and, you know, mimicking as though it was a real thing. Like, for example, they will say something about a pen register for the phone as if that's what they would do in the real world. But really, when these people signed up, they gave you permission to tap their phones. That's the assumption I'm making. Um, and yeah. and so it, it's it's really front loaded to make sure you get caught. Uh, but it's also pretty cool to watch how they go about uh, their business. And the first couple, uh, I didn't see it. I missed the first bit of it, but I was talking with somebody who did see it. They uh, went to a bus station and used the debit card that they gave them to buy a ticket to Atlanta. And then the police were there waiting for them when they got to Atlanta because they're morons. Um, but some of the others were really clever. Uh, one of the ones I liked in particular was this guy uh, hired a friend of his to drive a, to rent a car, put his name on it as a driver, and drive it around the Atlanta area. 
and the police were all smug about well what he doesn't know is that all new model cars uh, have a tracker in them and and we can get a warrant and and tab the gps and they're showing uh the map there and this guy's saying turn left on main go go right on fifth he's he's a half a mile in front of you and then they get there and this random dude in a beard gets out and says yeah my friend paid me to drive around and give you a wild goose chase i love that part personally that works very well doesn't it yeah when you actually send it's kind of like you use their weapons against them right you turn everything back on them and that's predominantly the best way to handle it from what i can see yeah, it, it is. It's 28 days. If they survive 28 days on the run, they get uh, $500,000 or something or a share. I think of, it was two fifty. Two fifty. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it's, it's well worth it for them. But uh, the funny thing is that they get caught because yeah. they do things habitually that just get caught. And what what's amazing to me is the amount of technology that's involved and how it's used all the time to surveil. Like all of their social media, their phones, their their GPS trackers, CCTV cameras, banking, everything like this leaves a little breadcrumb trail that surprisingly um, the hunters pick up extremely quickly and get to them very fast and some cases get ahead of them and then catch them as they walk into their, their trap. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting. It's a show that's sort of a social statement about living in the 21st century and how we've just given up our privacy, you know, to technology. That's just how it is. And I, I, we've spoken about that before, so I won't belabor it, but this, this show demonstrates it in, um, in you know, cinematographic cine, quality. So you get a chance to sort of feel like you're on the run with them. And I don't know, what did you, did you side with those that are on the run or with the hunters? What was... Where was your? I found myself wanting them to get away. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the way the show's designed because we're all just regular folk and we kind of want to relate to them. Not we're not law enforcement, or not all of us. But if you're not working for law enforcement, you probably don't want to side with law enforcement. But I don't know. You can see both sides of the equation, though. Yeah, it it it's comforting in a way. To know that the the good guys, uh, and I really think it's set up to to tell the story that the that bad guys lose, good guys win. Um, that's the narrative arc of the series before they ever started filming. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of comforting to know that um, the bad guys get caught. You know, and and uh, these people with, with all their planning, with all their forethought, you know, these people aren't necessarily criminal masterminds, but they do always get caught. Um, but there are certain rules like you can't travel outside a certain area. Like me, for example, being from Texas, um, I could, I have people in Texas that I could show up today that I have no like social media, uh, relationship with that. They're not on my friends list. They're not people I call, but they're friends that I've known long enough that I know I could just show up and say, can I sleep in your back room for a month? And they'd say, sure. So using that principle, I would be uncatchable uh, in this scenario, but they 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 make sure you can't do that. You you can only go like a you know a thousand miles or so in the out of this area, um, which is still a long long way. Uh, but four states, I think. But it, I think uh, watching it from a you know producer's eye, not that I am a producer, but uh, but from that perspective, I really see the tricks. And you know, reality is never reality. One section, for example, um, 
the 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 good guys, the bad guys, the the people on the run were hiding in some bushes, and the cops driving by said, "Is that them?" And, and I'm thinking, how could they possibly have seen them? And then I realized, oh yeah, they're the only people out there with four camera crew uh, <laughs> surrounding them. So yeah, that's how they saw them. Yeah, you always wonder how those camera crew get away with them. I mean, if they're all on the run and they're supposed to be covert, and yet they've got this camera crew behind them. Right. That's uh, kind of a dead giveaway, isn't it? And, you know, they're going to interview these supposed people, but, the you know, this is a surprise interview, but amazingly, they're mic'd up, and you can hear everything they say. Um, but they didn't know they were coming. Yeah, yeah. You wonder how much of this has been put on for TV. But in general, I think, though, it's... It's an entertaining show, and it's. Uh, I mean, did you enjoy it overall? Yeah. I mean, for the drama, it was fun to watch. I plan to watch it again. I uh, I don't know how many episodes it's going, but it looks like it's maybe a summer replacement. It's only going to go for or or winter replacement, I guess. It's only going to go for a few weeks. But yeah, I'll watch it. It's on my TiVo. I'll be re- uh, watching. It's going. On, I guess right now, right? It's Sunday nights. Um, uh, when, Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, maybe the Sunday was a replay. Uh, but yeah, I'll be watching it. Cool, and I encourage the audience if you like that kind of thing that re- that non reality TV, um, it's it's definitely fun to watch, and because the part of the fun of it is you going, well, I would so not do that. Yeah, well, the fact is you you would because <laughs> yeah, you're right. not a criminal mastermind. <laughs> um, like they showed up at, uh, they always reach out to a friend at some point because that's what we do. That's that's the human nature. That's what we do, and we're not criminals. We have friends. Um, and you know, if you're DB Cooper, you don't, you don't reach out to your friends cause you don't have any friends, um, because you're a criminal mastermind. So it's interesting to see the, the regular people. This one couple hid out in the swamps in Georgia or in, in uh, Florida rather for, uh, 18 days and they were completely off the grid. They could have done that forever, except they, they wanted to come in and get a shower and get some food. Well, once they did that, they stopped with a friend and that was it. But had they stayed out in the swamp, they would have been fine. But you can't. You just can't do that unless you're, you know, a hardened criminal on the run for your life. At some point, the need for a shower outweighs the need for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And amazing as that may uh, be to think about, that's the way we are as people. Yep, so true. All right, and a couple of things I wanted to talk about in the while we're in the uh, the pop culture thing. I watched a couple of movies this week, not new movies. Uh, one of them, Now You See Me Two. Um, it was. Uh, a sequel to Now You See Me, which was not a great movie, and this was not a great sequel to Not a Great Movie. Uh, fine bubblegum for the brain. I don't regret having watched it. No desire to ever see it again. Uh, magic, um, mystery, think um, um, the Da Vinci Code, but with magicians. Um, but because the first one was all mystery, who is this, what's going on, this time you already know the characters, you already know the story, it's missing a lot of the urgent originality of the first one. And it's just, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Eisenberg, um, the guy who yeah, played Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, Jesse Eisenberg being weird. Um, and, and that's charming in itself, but meh. Okay, Mark, I just, you've dropped a bombshell there. A sequel that is not as interesting and lacks the uh, mystery and charm of the original? I know it's rare, uh, that, but it does happen. I mean, man, <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. Check it out for the novelty. I mean, there are very few times when a sequel is better than the original. It happens. Rocky Two was better than Rocky. Uh, Toy Story Two was better than Toy Story. Uh, but for the most part, everything you loved about the original is just a, a cheap carbon copy in the sequel. 
And Star Trek Two, much better than Star Trek. Not even close. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then the other one I watched was Free State of Jones. If you like Matthew McConaughey being weird, then this show is for you. It's a story um, about true life events, which means there was a thing that happened, and then we told a story that had nothing to do with the thing that happened. Uh, that's the Hollywood version of true life events. But it was an interesting weaving together of relatively modern history. They bounce back and forth from Civil War to like uh, 1950s. Uh, not They didn't really go to current day, but it was about race relations. They, they weave that story in there. Uh, but basically, the free state of Jones was a real thing. There was a, a part of uh, Mississippi, a group of people um, who were not necessarily union sympathizers but didn't like the way the 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 south the confederacy was treating them either so they just broke away and said we are now our own country until such time as men with guns said no you're not uh and it's that story and it's interesting um the i my understanding of history is that it had much less to do with race relations than the movie made it to be um but also you know it was it was an interesting take uh, on the history part, uh, side of it and on the race relations side so um if you can stomach matthew mcconaughey being weird um which is a turn off to some people personally i like it it's like a train wreck i can't not watch matthew mcconaughey be weird um and it was interesting so one so uh, mediocre it, one pretty good so if you like the lincoln commercials <laughs> Yes. Give the free state of Jones a try. If you don't, probably steer clear. That's what I heard you say. Pretty much. What was the thing? Okay. Um, he won a won or was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, My name is Mud or I am Mud or something like that. Mud. That was what it's called. Just Mud. Um, it's that character only in the Civil War. Um, mm. So there you go. And at some point, all actors end up being the same thing all the time. You know, uh, Keanu Reeves has been Ted in every movie he's ever done. Um, whoa, whoa, I didn't see that. <laughs> and, except I haven't seen John Wick, but it really seems like Ted, you know, killing people. Um, uh, no, he, no, that's, he's not Ted okay. in that he's, so it's really showing his range there then. So, one okay. Character. If, if you just take the character, if you have Ted on one side and John Wick on the other in the middle, you kind of get Neo. So that's the, as far as Neo is from Ted, John Wick is from Neo. And you have established Keanu Reeves' range has an act. <laughs> but, you know, I don't mind that. You know, uh, that's the thing. Sometimes an actor is predictable and, and uh, you know, narrow range, but he, that's because they're good at it. Like John Wayne had one character he ever played. That character's name was John Wayne. Um, and yep. people loved him for it. So there's nothing wrong with that. Yep. Don't disagree with that. You know, I mean, Court Evans was the same guy who stormed Iwo Jima. Um, you know, it was, uh, yeah. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was only ever one character, uh, but we loved that character. Okay. Uh, moving on, we have a bit of uh, listener feedback, and I'm going to cue it up here. Uh, Batman um, has returned with some audio commentary about privacy. really should have queued that up ahead of time yes mark seth and miles this is batman again i just wanted to respond to episode 267 about uber and open source and 
companies knowing everything about you. Miles brought out a very good fact that uh, typical Westerners have myopia on this topic. We're thinking only of how this affects us in a relatively free Western society, but what about the oppressive countries around the world? The internet and the systems being built upon it are bigger than any of us. They are bigger than just the USA. They are bigger than all the countries in the world today. They impact untold generations yet to come. We have a responsibility to leave the world a better place than we found it, if it is within our power to do so. If all we do is support and encourage the establishment of systems that encourage the enslavement and powerlessness of the masses, then we've done our fellow humans a disservice. Should we not rather encourage and support the establishment of systems that empower people, that protect the rights of individuals? The internet has been an incredible tool to bring power to the individual, but of course others want to take advantage of the power of the internet to accomplish other goals. Thieves and cheaters will always try to use any system to steal and cheat. The power-hungry will always seek ways to gain power over others. But the moral imperative falls upon all of us to do what we can to resist the malicious and to develop systems that safeguard against their actions. So to put this in practical terms, is Uber free to require full access to your info in order to provide a service to you? Yes. Are you free to enter into that agreement with them? Yes. But should we as informed individuals seek to create or support alternatives that maintain liberty? Yes. Should we be worried when we see that no liberty-loving alternatives exist? Yes. We hear people in free countries saying, Track me, because I have nothing to hide. But then there are the cries of those in oppressive countries, the religious minorities in some countries that may be killed if their religious affiliation is discovered, the whistleblower or the informant that wishes to reveal injustice but could be found out, the homosexual in a Muslim country that could be killed if revealed, the political dissident that may be marginalized or blacklisted if they are known. This is the broader vision of freedom. This is the broader reasons for why we need liberty-loving apps and alternatives. These are the reasons why we need anonymity and privacy and security that protects the freedom of individuals against the tyranny of all who would oppress us. That is the position of Batman. So ordinarily I say, please keep your audio feedback to a minute or less, but if you're Batman, you get three minutes. Yeah. Um, so I lost my audio there at the, the seven o'clock mark for just a little bit, but it came back and all I got to say is I guess Batman really enjoys underwriting. We found who underwrites Richard Stallman. It is Batman. <laughs> so, I mean, who knew Batman was the libertarian? Miles, well what are your Batman. I like Batman. I tell you what, if I get in a tough space, I'll call out for him any day now. He's great. Right. I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree with anything he said. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to. Uh, Batman, I love you, uh, but that was a big pile of steaming guano. Um, <laughs> point and simple. You everything you said was speaking out against oppressive governments. Technology just happens to be a tool of oppressive governments. You're, you're placing the blame on the wrong place. Should technology not exist because some people would use it badly? No, that's a stupid argument. And Batman, you posed a stupid argument. Should we ban fire because some people burn down buildings? No, that's a stupid argument. Should we ban 
non-private, uh, non-open apps? Should we ban proprietary apps because some people use them badly? No, that's a stupid argument. Batman, I love you. Please save me if I'm ever being mugged, but that was stupid. No, he did not say to ban them. He said we should champion the open ones. You didn't listen to the first part where he said you're free to intertwine yourself if you want to. And then he went on to we say shouldn't. that, that uh, should we be okay with it? We have people saying this is a thing and we should always, you know, okay. So you're right. I, I painted his argument in a negative light when he was giving the positive version of that. So I just flipped his coin over. He said that um, somebody that technology could be misused in an evil way. Therefore, we need to make sure that there's technology that can't be misused. Okay, what technology can't be misused? All of it can. So, you know, we should. um, But that's the thing. All technology should be used. So we should only go back to eating whatever we come across that we can get with our hands and not use any tools, rocks, or anything to purify our drinking water. Yeah, and don't and leave that leaves will, for clothing. Yeah, well, I mean... That's a tool. That's a, that's a byproduct of technology. If you weave two leaves together, that leaf was not intended to be used in that way. And it could be misused. Right. Well, okay, you could grab a handful of leaves and cover yourself. That would not be technology. That's right. So maybe you could do leaves, um, you know, and you could, you could, um, I don't know. So, and that would also, that would, that would cut down on greenhouse emissions <laughs> that would cut down on overpopulation. Um, vast swaths of uh, human population would die. It would cure everything. If we just banned all technology, the only thing we have to do is come up with some way to monitor and enforce compliance on everyone in the world without using technology so batman i encourage you to continue to wage your war on people who use technology for evil but um you can't wage your war on technology because it can be misused and plus we don't want people to be able to track the batman and you know the more technology is out there the harder it is for him to maintain his anonymity so he does have a big stake in this so that's why so we can preserve batman we need to champion the libertarian viewpoint that says nobody should be able to track our stuff. Of course, if Don't you take you love away Batman, ba- if you take away Batman's technology, he's a WWE wrestler. <laughs> he's got a cool car, though. Now he's probably more of an MMA fighter, you know, because <laughs> uh, WWE they're the big no, jack <laughs> MMA. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, but none of them wear <laughs> tights and a cape. No, thanks, uh, Batman, for your your feedback. I appreciate it. Uh, I hope you didn't think I was too harsh on you, but. Uh, I knew these two bleeding hearts were going to say, yay, this is the best thing ever. And so I had to come up with a, with a rebuttal to it. <laughs> we love Batman. <laughs> you say, well, I do. Um, I do too. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm planning to have lunch with Batman in the near future. So, uh, you know, great. Uh, more Batman. Uh, also Kirk, uh, who was, who was on our podcast as a guest host, sent a rather long uh, bit of feedback that I have excerpted here. Uh, sorry, Kirk, but uh, you haven't reached Batman status, so you don't get that kind of length. Um, he says, Mark, Seth, you are correct in saying that the Chumley bill is really the Chumley tax. He may care about protecting our mental chastity or preventing child trafficking, but on the whole, the state cares about money and control. A porn filter premium, much like the Patriot Act or SOPA, excuses the... Uh, excuses to enact tighter surveillance under the guise of protection it it's measures like this that create libertarians however short-lived and insincere another case of giving you the sickness and providing a cure 
And then he goes on to say, comparing general anxiety to PTSD is offensive. It's part of the disorder culture where everyone wants to explain away their failings with a diagnosis. False diagnoses tie up the therapeutic resources, impede personal growth, and lead some people with psychological issues to question whether they have them. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I totally agree with that last, the last little bit that you did. But again, we don't know. You know, I don't know the stuff they were looking at. I don't know the amount of trauma it caused. Um, all I, you know, competent, I would assume competent per, uh, mental health professionals. And, you know, my degree was in counseling, which is watered down psychology, um, just in layman's terms. So I understand a little bit of what they're talking about, but I know it's possible to get. And so there's no indication from the article that it was just diagnosed in order to expedite a lawsuit. So while misdiagnosing and overdiagnosing is part of the problem, um, there's nothing to indicate that that is what happened in that article. Miles? Uh, it is offensive. <laughs> it is offensive. It's offensive to somebody who's put their life on the line, you know, been shot at and so on, uh, soldiers particularly. So I, I champion their cause. I think they've really been out there on our behalf. And to do anything that belittles their experience to me is offensive. So, yeah, I agree with Kirk on this one. So during the show, I defended uh, these uh, Microsoft employees because they had a medical diagnosis by medical professionals. So it's not fair to us to say that they don't have what they say they have uh, when a medical professional has said that they do. Um, and And I'm sticking by that because... At some point, you have to have some faith in the medical profession, but at the same time, I right now am in the process of paying for Chelsea Manning's fake boobs because he has a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So, um, yeah, there's 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 two sides to that coin, and it's a very narrow edge between the two. Well, let me draw you a, a an illustration of how I'm seeing this. Imagine in somewhere in Nevada, you've got some military compound and in there goes these guys every day and they sit at a computer with joysticks and they watch these drones flying all over Yemen or wherever and they target things and they shoot and they kill from their comfortable chairs in Nevada. And they probably experience some level of trauma or anxiety for doing that, but it's sort of like a video game experience almost to them. They still go home at the end of the day and they have a beer and they have dinner with the family and whatever. Versus the guy in the front line out there who is picking up a gun and putting himself in harm's way and mo moving him and his, and his squad into combat and facing real-life bullets being shot at him and he can't go home at the end of the day and have a beer with his family and have dinner and go to Denny's or whatever. That's where the offensive comes to me. You know, they're both doing their service and they're both experiencing anxiety, but there's different grades of that. And to call the, to put them under the same uh, terminology as to what their anxiety is, is where I find that very difficult to stomach. And I think that's kind of what Kirk was saying in this. At least I, I'm, that's what I'm reading it as. Yeah, I, you know, it's very tough because, uh, again, it's easy for us to sit back and nit and nitpick, um, and draw distinctions that 
you know, some, your mind perceives what your mind perceives. And in one sense, for some people, it's easier to be out there on the front line shooting. And then when you go home to leave it there and be perfectly well adjusted and other people, the fact that they're in no physical danger themselves, but yet directing the deaths of dozens or hundreds of people. And then to go home into a normal life that non sequitur can destroy your psyche. So who's to say that one produces a, a bigger or smaller mental imbalance than the other, just depending on the psyche of the people involved. So again, you know, uh, we'll have to, I, I don't want to get too much into it. We'll save it for our psychology today podcast later on, but I just, <laughs> you know, we can't, you can't paint with broad strokes when you're dealing with something that's complex and nuanced has the human mind and the human experience. I think one thing that we can all agree on is safe rooms on campus are stupid. Um, because that's, that's where that pendulum swings, right? If you, if you, the, the sniper on overwatch, who's up close and personal looking at people in the face as he blows their brains out, as compared to the, the guy uh, flying a drone and dropping bombs from a thousand feet, as you swing that pendulum back farther and farther, you get the, the, uh, whiny millennial who got offended and is claiming post-traumatic stress disorder. So, um, you, you all have a point in that uh, anytime you label something, you create potential for mislabeling. But at the same time, you know, suffering is real and, and it's, you can't get help until it's been named. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine balanced thing uh, that we've got to, we know that, that that guy in Nam who watched his friend step on a mine, uh, landmine and get blown up, we, nobody disagrees that he suffered trauma through that. And nobody disagrees that he needs, uh, may or may not need some uh, external assistance in dealing with that trauma. Uh, but we all agree that whiny millennials don't deserve safe rooms on their campus because words hurt. It, it's the vast middle in between that, that there's disagreement on. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, and moving on now A to great the- start to financial failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Money, money, money. <laughs> Uh, well, actually, I did have uh, a, a lead-in, but uh, I was going to say something that has caused me trauma over my last 20 years is how dumb I was when I was 20 years ago, uh, when I was 20 years old, about money. So uh, what we decided to do about this show is we were going to take, uh, each of us were just going to take a second and talk about just money, finances in general, our take on it, uh, be that tips or regrets or encouragement, whatever that is. This was going to be our intro into the financial February where we do have a, uh, what I think is going to be a great guest and we'll tease that a little more later, but later in the month, we're going to have a great guest uh, to come on. Who's going to tell us his story. Um, uh, but for now I thought it would be to, to, to provide, provide some background and some context, uh, we're just three guys at different steps uh, of, you know, st- different stages in the ladder, even though we're at similar ages. Um, and our audience is going to be, you know, also across various stages of, of their financial walk in life, even though you're at various uh, ages. And, and so uh, I just thought it would be an opportunity for us to talk about what's important to us and, and sort of the, the encapsulated message that we're going to be coming back to over the next few weeks as we do financial February. So I've titled mine things I knew when I was 20, but didn't care about until I was 40. 
Um, and this is both a, a song of regret, uh, an elegy for a fallen uh, potential, but also a word of warning. Um, I'm reminded of Douglas Adams, where the, the hermit was up on the mountain, and uh, um, the uh, protagonist of that, whose name just flew out of my head, Arthur Dent, went to him and said, tell me the, uh, the, the truth about life. And the guy, you know, living in a cave full of his own feces produced a book of every decision he'd ever made. And he said, do read this and do the opposite of everything I did. And you won't be living in a cave full of your own feces on the top of a mountain. Um, So take from this, do exactly what I didn't do. And you won't be regretting the 20 wasted years of your finances. Um, So one of the things that, that I struggled with, and I'm a smart guy, right? Uh, I, I expect well, it's the curse of being the smart guy. You always think you're smart enough to figure out, to think your way out of situations. You always think you're the smartest guy in the room, um, even when you're not. And so I always thought that I knew how to handle my money. I, I grew up very, very poor, dirt poor, um, to the to the tune of, you know, uh, often, not often, but occasionally uh, having to seek uh, f- assistance from outside, from things like Salvation Army and things like that, uh, you know, standing in line for the government cheese and powdered eggs because we literally could not eat without it. Um, and while I am a uh, uh, outspoken opponent of the what social governmental social programs have become, I am uh, the product of the government social safety net. So I, I am of two minds about that. Uh, but when I you know, got out on my own, I thought I knew what I was doing. And one of the things that, that I knew when I was 20 but didn't care about until I was 40 was the concept of telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. So I would get to the end of the month and I would be out of money if I got to the end of the month uh, with, with my money. Most times I didn't. Uh, my wife and I fell into the same trap that so many kids do. Uh, we began living our parents' lifestyle as 20-somethings. And you can't afford your parents' lifestyle when you're 20-something. So naturally, you look to um, artificial aids. And in our case, the artificial aids were credit cards and bank loans. And so anytime we needed something, we went and took a loan for it. Uh, Anytime we needed something, we put it on the credit card. Uh, Before I was even out of college, in one year of college or probably one summer between semesters, I had run up $1,000 plus on my Chevron gas card, buying gasoline for my truck that I couldn't afford. Where did I need to go? Well, some of that was legitimate, but much of it wasn't. Much of it was running around doing the things that a 22-year-old likes to do, but not paying, being able to pay for it. So one of the first credit cards I ever got in, tr- in trouble with was Chevron. Um, I went away for the summer. They sent my bill to the dorms. I didn't live in the dorms during the summer. When I didn't pay my bill that month, they said, oh, yeah, you no longer owe us the $20 minimum payment. You now owe us all of it, which I think it was like, like I said, about $1,000, which at that time might have been $1 million to me. Um, so, you know, at the age of 21, 22, uh, maybe even less, uh, I was, you know, in default on a credit card. Uh, and, and those things do follow you for years to come. But I never told my money where to go. I never sat down and said, here's, here's my plan. I, I plan everything. You guys know me. You've, you've listened to me talk about this show. I plan vacations with spreadsheets. I am a planner. Everything I do, I sit down first. I, I plan it. I like to make stuff out of wood, um, and I will sit down and I will draw it out. Uh, when, when I you know move furniture into a room, I start with graph paper first, and I measure out the furniture and measure out the room and cut shapes, or now I do it digitally. I, I draw shapes, and I make sure everything is. I'm a planner, except when it comes to money. 
when I wing it. That's a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. A lesson I am still learning because I still like to wing it with money. I don't know why. I don't know why that planning part of me um, didn't make it into my psyche in relation to money. But, uh, you know, sitting down at the beginning of a pay period, whether that's a month or a week or, or however you get paid and saying, this is the, mo- the amount of money I expect to go to get. This is where I expected to go. I am the boss of my money. I never did that. Um, you know, and when I was 20, retirement was nowhere near on my mind. Now, as I'm watching my uh, mother move more into the elderly status and, and realizing that she is she's who, the person who taught me most about money. I was a, a, a product of a single parent. Um, and everything I learned about money, good and bad, first began from my mother. Well, she is now 70 plus years old with nothing. She's got a government disability check, which is meager. Um, and the only thing that she will be leaving when she leaves this world is a legacy of debt and and garbage. Um, and I don't want that. You know, I, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to uh, to work up until lunchtime the day of my funeral. Even if I can, even if I can be healthy and sharp and on it, I don't want that. I want the option to be able to not get up and go to work every day. Retirement is a relatively new concept, relatively modern. It's a Western concept, really. Um, used to, you worked until you couldn't physically do the work anymore, and then you did something else. You were the tribal elder. You were the medicine man. You, you, know, you did something. You were the historian of your uh, uh, area. You always contributed something. Um, you helped with raising of the the children while while the younger people went out and and that was that symbiotic relationship with the larger family. Uh, there were multi generations living within a home. We Americans have given that up. Um, not just Americans, but I'm I'm an American, so I'm talking about Americans. We've given that up, and now we warehouse our elderly um, because they're inconvenient until they die, uh, and we don't mind that uh, that warehouse uh, that that trove of knowledge that experience that they could have and so we make the same mistakes they did instead of learning from them and uh we have children who are afraid of old people instead of revering them because they're a thing uh strange wizened beast that they see a couple of times a year at best um and that is not only a social thing that we're doing wrong but a financial thing we're doing wrong because we're not uh we're not we're not taking care of our parents at best, you know, we try to get them into a good home, hoping that their insurance or their government disability will pay for that home. And that's what we consider um, the right thing to do for our parents. And we have lots of reasons for it. They're medically, we're unable to take care of them. And I'm not saying that, uh, that uh, long-term uh, care is not sometimes the best solution, but I am saying that it's often not the best solution when it's chosen. Um, and so we're losing that, and we're losing a generation of people who who – you know, there's a whole generation of people who, kids today, who won't be able to stop working. You know, our parents, the boomers, um, are, are finding that, you know, they're getting to 65 and, and the arthritis hurts and, and they don't want to do this anymore, but they got no retirement. It's gone because they didn't save. And I'm staring down that barrel now at 44 years old, uh, realizing that I don't have the money to stop working at all. I mean, I'm working to fix that, but at this moment in time, I don't have the money to stop working. And that's a mistake that I could have corrected when I was 20. Just by putting away, you know, $100 a month, $100 a month would have changed my future. Um, and that's, you know, uh, a couple of pizzas and, and burgers a month. And I could have found that as hard as it might have been when I was poor, I could have found $100 a month, but I didn't do it. Um, and then, you know, the, the, ra- the lesson that I would wrap up with, the thing that I wish I had told myself is start saving yesterday. If you're starting today, you're, it's too late, however old you are. 
So that's, uh, you know, things that I knew when I was 20, but I didn't care about till I'm 40. Uh, and, you know, that's where I'm starting from. So every financial decision I make comes from that point, that place of having wasted 20 years of my life, at least financially speaking. I did lots of other things in that 20 years, but financially speaking, I didn't do enough. And so I come from a point of, of a cautionary tale. So uh, who wants to take, go next? Or any questions ne- about that? Go for it, Seth. Well, well, okay. Any questions Question. or comments? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much right there with you. So <laughs> don't really I, disagree. Or go ahead, I Miles. Would, you see. I would say you're in the majority, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't think in, in any way you are uh, not normal in terms of that experience. I think that people who aren't in that, in that situation are abnormal. Yeah, and I'm tired of being normal. I want to no longer be normal. All right, Seth, you go now. Okay, well, ditto to everything Mark said. So as you're listening to us, don't try to, um, you know, I'm going to go with what Mark said over Miles or Seth or whatever. Take some of all of this because I was the last one to write stuff down. And so I purposely went a little different direction just to give you a little more food for thought here. So your whole money is one aspect of your life and it is, has the fact that it is one aspect. It is not something to dominate your entire life, but at the same token, it is not something to neglect. And unfortunately, most of us, uh, in, in America, and you can look at any metric and most of us in America have neglected money because we're, because of, you know, squirrel and just go with that. So, Here is a way to think about it that this is true in any area of your life, be it money or whatever. So when you do something today for the sake of tomorrow, call that an investment. When you choose to put a dollar in the bank rather than get a Coke out of the machine, you've invested in your life. You know, when you choose to not buy something today so you can not put it on the credit card for tomorrow, that's called an investment. When you choose to enjoy something today at the expense of tomorrow, that's called a debt. So when you fill up your car at the gas station and then you walk in and get a 20 ounce drink and a, you know, I don't know, a honey bun or whatever your sweet tooth delicious thing is, and you didn't put that money in the bank, you created a debt because you you wasted resources. And yeah, I'm not talking about food because you got to eat food, but you know, you wasted resources that you could have put away for the future. So that's called a debt. And with anything in life, if you are studying for your career, you need more investment than debt. You know, if you're planning for the future in your relationship, you need to spend more time building them up than you do pulling stuff out of them. So Invest for tomorrow rather than waste for today. So another uh, topic I want to have, and this is where I want to kind of spend my little bit of time. You can either work for other people's money or you can make money yourself. So if you want that shiny new iPhone 6 Plus, you can go out and get it on some type of investment or installment plan where you either put it on your credit card and you're going to pay that off at the monthly charge and the interest rate, or you're going to pay X amount a month for so many months and it will come out to be more money than if you just bought it outright. 
So, or you, you know, when I was a kid, layaway was a big deal. You would go to the store and you would say, I want to buy these things. And here is 10% of the money down and they would put it up for you and you would come and pay on it until it was paid off. And then they would give you the things. Now, stores hate layaway. You go and you put it on a credit card that you're going to pay off over a few months plus interest, and then you get to use it right now. So in that sense, you are working for somebody else's money. You know, if you use, if you use a discover card, you're working for discovers money, uh, discover cards money, because you're not being able to use that money. Whereas if you wait and realize, Hey, this is something I don't need, or I do need that. Let me save up the money and pay for it all at one time. Then you are making money work for you. You're able to put that money in savings uh, or any other type of investment and earn a little bit, whether it be an in interest, dividend, or just, you know, extra money. So in that case, you're making money go for yourself. So think about that as you do things, you know, and again, sometimes you just got to blow a little money. I understand that, but you want to invest for tomorrow. So one of the things you can do is, how can you make the most of what you're doing today? You know, we talk a lot here about Amazon and how you can go to elementopi.com slash Amazon and buy your stuff and you get the exact same experience, but you help us make a little bit. And most of us are Amazon Prime members um, because we do it for the shipping and the shipping's great. But did you know there's a large selection of videos uh, movies and original content that Amazon produces. Some of it's not as good as Netflix. Some of it's just a little different because they're different companies. And so did you know that if you don't want to have Netflix or you only want Netflix six months so you can binge watch all of your shows, um, you can watch sh shows. Um, like I say, um, movies, uh, they have a different selection of movies than Netflix. Some blockbusters, some you've never heard of, some are garbage. Um, did you know that if you have a Kindle Fire device, you can check out one book a month for free, pretty much any book? You don't need and, a Kindle device. The app on any Android or iPhone will do it. Too. Oh, really? Used to, you it wouldn't work. You had to have a Kindle device. So that's cool that they've opened it up like that. But you get one book a month. So if you're somebody like me and you love to read, um, hey, I can if I read a book a month and I didn't buy one because I... Uh, had the app, I've paid for the hundred dollars it cost me. Um, did you know there's other things you can do with Amazon Prime as well? You know, you can get more food, um, like household items. Can you can bundle them all together because a lot of those aren't available for shipping? But there's a lot of things like that. Um, if you are a Netflix subscriber, Netflix has recently made a change where you can download movies or you can download content for offline viewing. So if you're going to be going on an airplane and you don't want to spend the $10 or whatever for the flight, you can get an SD card for your phone and you can download content. So you don't have to pay for some other source in order to do that. So whatever you like to use, you know, if you're somebody who always uses a credit card, look at like, I love the discover card because I get my 1% cash back. And some other times I get like, you know, up to 5%. Because, but I pay it off every month. So I'm not paying the money. I keep that money in a savings account that earns me a little bit of interest, not much. Um, but then I'm earning cash back. And so I buy the exact same stuff I would buy before, but this way it costs me less and I make a little bit on the side. Anything you're using, spend some time, do some research and see 
is there some benefit that I don't have? You know, you have to have insurance, but it's not regulated what company you have to have insurance with. Can you save $100 a year by getting a quote from a different insurance company, whether it be for car, home, or life? You know, just because your dad and your granddad and your great-granddad and your great-great-granddad made a a handshake with somebody in a coonskin cap doesn't mean they make the, they cover the best, they provide the best insurance for where you are. So look at what you're spending and am I getting everything out of this? I can, am I leaving money on the table? If you are, man, take that money and then you have more to save and you have more to invest just because you do something, you know, the, the phrase, oh, that's the way we've always done it can be one of the most expensive things ever because, you know, there are so many new options. Um, you know, my parents have a savings account at a brick and mortar bank. I have a savings account at an online bank. I make roughly 10 times the amount of interest that they do on less. I have less than half as much in savings as, as my dad does, but I make a lot more in interest because the online savings account pays way more than the brick and mortar savings account. Uh, we both, you know, we both have savings, but you know, I'm getting paid more. The downside is if I request that to come into my regular bank, it takes a couple of days, but I'm in a find, I'm in a situation where a couple of days isn't going to matter because I've got enough on hand. So are you getting the most bang for your buck today? If not, a little bit of research, you know, hey, five minutes can save you 15% on more than just car insurance. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's just kind of my point is, you know, don't be upset about what you did or didn't do in the past. You know, oh my gosh, I'm 44 years old and I've got less than $10,000 to go towards my retirement. Oh, it's over and done with. I'm going to be a street person when I grow older. No, where am I at now? What can I do now that gives me something I didn't have yesterday? And just start now and go forward. So that's kind of where uh, some different advice, I guess. Yeah, one thing I wanted to comment on that you said there's a lot of people, myself included, um, up until very recently, don't understand the difference between an asset and a liability, or as you called it, an investment and a debt. Um, Particularly young people are rapidly about the business of accumulating liabilities. Um, and they're doing so with other people's money. So they go out and borrow money to buy a liability. Uh, so now you owe the debt and you have the liability. And for example, a car. Um, a car will only ever cost you money unless it's a rare antique or a hot rod or something like that, that it's very rare that you can sell a car for more than you you paid for it. Very rare. A car will only ever cost you money, operating costs, depreciation costs, and a replacement cost. And so you go out and you you borrow money to buy something that's only ever going to cost you money. You you literally are throwing money into a hole in that case. It's a, it's a nice hole with a good new car smell and, and a six-disc CD changer, uh, but it's a hole that you're throwing money into. If you've got the money to throw into a hole, that's fine. Uh, but one of the things I, that I think... I have I have learned in very in the very recent past is is people talk about they have savings when really they don't. So if you've got ten thousand dollars in savings but you owe fifty thousand dollars, you don't have any savings. You have forty thousand dollars in debt. So that was just something I wanted to tag on there. Miles, go. Wow, 
I feel like I'm an alien <laughs> because I'm, I have my experiences and my, my day to day life is very different, um, to that. And it's not that it's right, wrong, good, bad. It's nothing. It's just different. I mean, I'll tell, I'll, I'll allude to how I got to where I am and what makes sense here with a little bit of history on me. Um, you know, I'm from Adelaide, Australia. It's a little town on the south coast of Australia with about a million people in it. But, <laughs> little town. Yeah, little town here. <laughs> we don't have that many towns in Australia. I grew it? up in a town of 1,500. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah. grew up in a town of like 270. Right. Well, um, Adelaide is a, is a very uh, pragmatic city. It's, uh, you know, the buck stops on your desk kind of place. And when I was a kid, I had uh, I was an only child, and uh, my parents were not wealthy at all. My mother didn't work, and my father was a roof inspector for a roofing company. And um, I, I wanted things. I was a kid, you know, like when I was eight years old, I wanted to get, uh, I don't know, a football or a bicycle or something like that. Well, if I was lucky enough to wait until Christmas, I might be able to get something. But otherwise, you're on your own, kid. Go and work it out. So I did. I started realizing that I could make money running paper routes. So I started riding around my neighborhood throwing newspapers out of a, a kind of a home-built contraption on a bicycle, which I dreamed up, that would allow me to deliver something like about 200 papers in the morning before I went to school. And I did that. And I made some paltry amount of money. But you know what? I was making money. All my friends at school weren't. And then eventually I started realizing, hey, that's great, but it's, you know, I want to buy a, I don't know, an electric guitar. And that was going to take me something like about 12 months to save up from this, you know, little bit of income. And no one was going to help me. So what did I do? I got a second paper round. And then I got a third. And then I found out that I was getting up at three in the morning, four days a week before I went to school and, and throwing newspapers. But you know what? In three months, I got my guitar. And then I looked at it and I said, hey, I've got this guitar. That's great. I'm bored with that. What now? Well, what did I learn? I learned three paper rounds get you a lot of money. Ooh, let's go do that. So I started pushing and pushing and pushing that. And as I got older and older, I picked up money from, from friends. Uh, I remember a friend of mine's father owned an a aluminum recycling plant. And one of the things that he would pay me was like $20 to go down there on a Saturday morning and work for about three hours, which back in those days was quite a bit of money. But you know what I had to do? I had to take people's, um, you know, recycled cans, like, you know, drink cans and stuff like that. And I had to count them because back in those days, you didn't crush them and weighed them. You paid, I think it was like five cents per can or something like that. And we got a share of that and the government got a share of that. But all these people would bring in these, you know, garbage bags full of cans Half of them were full of beer. The smell was disgusting. It was the most, it was one of those typical dirty jobs, right? But I did it every single week because I wanted to make money. And it became this obsession with wanting to make money. It wasn't that money was the goal. It was the freedom it gave me. It was the, the ticket to being able to do something that my parents couldn't provide me. I mean, they did some wonderful things for me. They put me in school. They made sure I was safe and healthy and clothed and everything like that. But after that, it was all about what I had to learn. And I took that philosophy all the way through my life. I ended up going into business at a very young age. I ran some businesses. By the age of 
24, I was employing six full-time people. I was doing work with governments. I was working with corporations. I was a kid. I didn't know squat. And then one day I met this girl when I was on vacation in Hawaii, which I saved up for that vacation for a year, I think, doing all this work. I eventually get, got married and moved to the United States, and I came with nothing. I mean, literally nothing. I had a suitcase, nothing. And I had to take all of that learning and training that I did from the age when I was eight, and I had to make something with myself. Six years later, I left this country a millionaire. So I went back to Australia with a ton of money, got divorced, lost most of it, and then found myself stuck back in Adelaide going, well, what am I going to do now? And, you know, look, life changes, right? We all go through life experiences. It's just how life is. But at the end of the day, you get down to nothing and you pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you do it all over again. But, you know, I had one thing. Learning. I knew how to make money. So back I went and I worked for four or five years. I built up some money and then I had an opportunity to come back to the United States. I still was a, a permanent resident. I came back and I walked back into the dot-com boom. Who'd have thunk it? Right, it was 1999, and Yahoo stock was at some ridiculous amount, and Google was this thing, and everybody, and you know what, I was a really good programmer, I'd learnt that as part of my trade, and I came back and I started working, five years later, I was a millionaire again, go figure, and then all of a sudden 2008 happened, (laughs) because I had put most of my money into real estate, but the funny thing is that my, I, I remarried when I was in Australia, and my wife in Australia shared the same philosophy as she is my wife now. She has the exact same philosophy as on money that we had growing up there. She came from a similar background. She had to go and earn everything on her own. Her parents, were, she had to came from a large family, and there wasn't any money to give any of the individual kids. You had to learn it yourself. She did that. She learned it all, and we came together, and we we're a freaking powerhouse. I mean, we can do amazing things with money. She was the one who said to me when we were living in Australia, we should buy some properties. We'd done okay for a while, and we, we, we decided that we were willing to go into debt and buy a couple of houses. And we did that, and we put tenants in there, and it was hard work, hard slog, try to get them paying rent every, every month and to keep the properties well done. We ended up hiring a property manager. All they did was take all the properties, uh, profits we made. We ended up just using, that was like this, there was this sucking sound of opening real estate, right? You just kept putting money into it and there it went down the drain all the time. But eventually, you know, we stuck at it. We stuck at it. Time is, is really important with this whole thing. Well, what happened was when we came back to the United States, we left those properties being managed by a property manager. And when the financial crisis hit here, we were really in in bad way. We lost pretty much everything. But those two properties we had in Australia were still there. We sold them. We tripled our money. We took that money. We came in. We bought up all these distressed properties that were over here that people didn't want because they were all foreclosed or abandoned or whatever. And we bought up a whole ton of those. And today, uh, I'll... One example, we bought a building in Phoenix, a multi-unit building with four units, generates good rent. We paid $75,000 for that. I could sell that building today for three hundred and fifty, but we bought five of them. So you do the math. Am I a hard worker? Hell yeah. I don't stop. I am gung-ho at work because it's not work to me. I love what I do. But at the same time, 
that's doing it on its own. And so if you take those life experiences and you sort of distill them down into just a half a dozen simple points that are philosophical that people can learn from my experience, they could do it themselves. It's the first thing you've got to realize is that you don't make money from hard work. You make money from owning assets that go up in value. And the thing is, you've got to also realize that in order to be able to buy into those assets, you have to put yourself in a position where you can live on only 50% of what you make. And if you can't do that, forget the iPhone, people. (laughs) It's not going to make you rich. You can buy a thousand iPhones after you, if you're willing just to wait a little bit, suck away half of what you make, live on what is the old uh, Dave Ramsey thing? Beans, beans and, and rice. rice. Yeah, there you go. Live on that for a while. Build up your savings. Build up your money, and then take that money and buy something that will generate income. And if you do that without, just don't stop. Keep doing it. Because here's the situation that we're all faced with. And I don't want to be a doom and gloom person because I'm not. You don't have to fall into this trap. If you have to retire for, let's say, at the age of 65 and you're going to live for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, you're going to need about two million bucks. Why? Because at the current rate of interest based on bonds or you know reasonably low risk investments and consider the fact that when you're retired, you can't afford risk. So you're going to go with low risk stuff. The amount of interest that you're going to get on that money is so low right now that in order for you to have enough to have, say, $4,000 or $5,000 of actual income, you're going to need $2 million. Now, that's not including the house you live in. That's not an asset. That's a liability. I'm talking about assets, things that are outside of that. You're going to need $2 million. Now, you can have it in money. You can have it in bonds. You can have it in equities. You can have it in gold. You can have it in Bitcoin. You can have it in real estate. You can have it in business. It doesn't matter. But when you're 65, I guarantee you one thing. You don't want to get out of bed in the morning. You don't want to go out there and dig holes. You don't want to do hard work because you're old. So you don't set yourself up where you've got nothing at that age. So how do you get that $2 million? You take risks. Risks is what life is all about. It's a risk when you get up in the morning, you're not going to be hit by a car down the street, that you're not going to fall over with a heart attack. It's a risk. You manage risk. So if you want to learn anything, forget what they teach you in college, forget what they teach you in school, learn how to manage risk. Learn how to make an investment that won't sink you. Learn how real estate works that won't bankrupt you. All those things you've got to learn because the buck stops on your desk and you can work as hard as you want, but if you're not working smart and you're not working to acquire assets, you're doomed. So that that would be my fin- it, look. I mean, we could I could go on for months talking about this stuff because it's in my blood. It's what I do. It's what I love. But it's those things that will make you wealthy, and you've got to be willing to sacrifice. And you've got got to be willing to say, I am not going to buy something I cannot pay cash with, because then when you buy it, you're going to damn well appreciate it. And if you don't have to put out one little bit of money to buy that phone or that car or that direct TV thing or whatever it is, if you don't have any skin in the game, well, you're going to be a victim to it and it won't be an asset or, or a valuable thing to you. And the only way you're going to know if you really, 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 really want that thing is to wait 
save up all the money and pay cash with it. And if you do that and you still want it, then you've earned it. And if you buy it and you haven't gone through that experience, it owns you. So you make the choice. I'll leave it there. Good stuff, man. Um, the, that's a great story. That's a story I want to be able to tell someday um, of, you know, the the working hard. Uh, I, I remember uh, it was a side conversation. I wasn't even in on it. I was six or seven at the time. But my grandfather was talking with one of one of the, his peers, so somebody my grandfather's age, and they were talking about stories from when they came back from World War II uh, and adjusting to life there. And my grandfather was old during World War II. He was actually called back. He had been in active duty prior to the war, and toward the end of the war when they were calling everybody back, um, he got called back. So let's say he was 40 uh, during World War II, I don't know, uh, but I'm just going to say that that sound, that passes the sniff test, right? So when everybody else fighting the war was 20, he was 40, and he came back from the war uh, like everybody with nothing. He was a dust bowl baby. He didn't have anything. He had worked his uh, was in the process of working his way up, right? Um, but he told me, or he told somebody else, and I heard, and it stuck with me all these years later that his first mortgage. These were the terms of his first mortgage, 50% down, 50% over five years. That was the terms of his first mortgage. What kind of house would you live in today if those were the terms of your mortgage? 50% down, 50% over five years. Most of us don't buy cars um, that we can afford that for. So think about what kind of house you would live in. That's the kind of sacrifice he made. He had uh, two daughters and a wife, and he made that kind of sacrifice. He, he bought a house that he could pay off in five years. Uh, and he worked his way up and he died um, very well off. He, he, you know, he had his own business and, and he worked. Uh, but the difference there is in understanding, as, as I said earlier, what is an appropriate thing to spend money on or in, uh, to take miles attacked? What is an appropriate thing to take a risk on? Taking a risk on a liability is not a smart play. If you're going to risk, don't risk for something that has no upside. So if I if you were, you know, if you're just out of college and you're looking at buying your first home, think about it in those terms. Buy a home that you can pay off in 5 years. What kind of home is that going to be? It's certainly not going to be the home your parents live in. It's not going to be that uh, three bedroom, two and a half bath, uh, you know, that you in, envision retiring in. You should not retire in the first home you buy. That that means you're doing it wrong. Seth, your thoughts? Oh, man. I mean, financial February is done. Just listen to Miles and we'll all be millionaires <laughs> next right. year. Miles, just, so. just teach us every week for the next month and we're good. Yeah. Okay. No, um, you know, there's there's so much truth um, in what's being said. Uh, one of the things that I remember hearing when Miles was talking is a poor person asks, can I afford the payment? And a rich person says, how much does that cost? And, you know, if you have to afford a payment then you really need to ask yourself if you need it. Now, like I would recommend against most people buying a new car simply because they lose so much of their value. But if you're someone like me who has a very long commute, then I can't risk a broken down, you know, $4,000 beater car that Dave Ramsey talks about. So for me, in my situation, you know, a new car, while is, is not necessarily a good waste of money, it enabled me to get a better job in a better location, making far more money than I can make anywhere around me. 
and the money, the extra money I made more than covered the cost of the car. So, you know, there are the, you can't, you know, just like with anything else in life, your mileage may vary because while we're giving and hopefully we're coming to advice that is good for 90% of the population, you, you could be someone who, you know, listen to the principle, but not necessarily the exact rule. So, you know, I don't know if that really has anything to do with anything, but you know, sometimes your situation is different than what the, the experts aren't talking to you when they recommend a situation. I don't know if, yeah. anyway. And one distinction that I, that I wanted to make, uh, you, you know, uh, you invoked the name of, of Dave Ramsey. If you don't know who Dave Ramsey is, Google him. He's, he's not hard to find. He's the number three talk radio show in the country. So a lot of people do know who he is. But he basically espouses the those kind of beliefs that my grandfather would have said. In fact, that's what he says. The same advice your grandmother would give, only we keep our teeth in. Um, that's one of his lines. Um and it's, you know, don't don't buy something you can't afford. You know, don't ask how much is the payment. But uh one of the things um that that as Miles was talking, it, it occurred to me um, there's a difference between being poor and being broke, and there's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. Um, a a a poor person, you can be a wealthy poor person. Miles had in his notes here that uh, uh, surveys show that uh, large percentage of people, seventy plus percent of people, who come into a large windfall of money, uh, uh, an insurance settlement or a lottery or whatever, uh, end up five years later worse off than they were that's because they are poor people um who come into money they stop they don't stop being poor people just because they have money um you can be a broke rich person miles was a broke rich person he had a rich mentality but he was broke uh and he worked his way with that rich mentality back to wealthy so Rich and wealthy and broke and poor are not the same things, and we need to b- divorce those from our minds. And if you look around you and everybody that you're comparing yourself to is a is a poor, broke person, then don't emulate the poor, broke people. Don't emulate the rich, poor people either, um, you know, the wealthy, poor people. Uh, you need to, to make yourself every day, you need to get up and say, I am a, I am a rich person in search of my wealth. Yeah, let, let me add a couple of, like, real specific things that kind of might help flesh this out a bit. Um, the first problem is that we we have to... Wealthy people have this habit of distancing themselves from uh, government or state-run economic policy. Because what is specifically really, really good for a country in terms of tax and in terms of um, you know, uh, money to go around for social programs or for defense or all those sort of things are often juxtaposed with what's interest, what's of value to a business owner or uh, an investor or, uh, you know, somebody who's looking after their financial independence. They're very distinct things. And yet what happens is we often succumb our decisions to what is more of interest to the state or corporations or banks or whatever. So what happens is that they sell us a message that interests that benefits their interest. Go and get that credit card. You can have this mortgage with only 2% down. You know, take out, get this car and zero interest payments, you know, for the first 12 months or buy that sofa you want and, you know, don't pay for it until 2023 
Whatever it is, these are messages which support large financial institutions, banks, central banks, governments, because debt enslavement, and I'm not, I, I don't want to use that term in a very negative sense. It's not. It's a choice, right? It's a choice for you to buy that car, buy that mortgage, buy that couch. You make that choice willingly. No one's taking your power away from you to make that choice. But what's happening is that every time you drive down the road, the billboard on the side of the road routinely says, you know, this bank will give you a loan for only this amount or get this credit card and you'll be really cool or you need this thing for status with all your friends. And if, you, if you're constantly bombarded with this stuff in the media, whether it be the billboard, the TV, the radio, the internet pop-up ad, whatever it is, you're constantly bombarded with it. It's really easy to fall into the trap that you walk into work and you're standing around the water fountain and when all your buddies come in, you start having a conversation about, hey, did you see Bob just bought himself the new Lexus, blah, blah, blah. Well, Bob just bought himself $50,000 of debt. That's what Bob did. It's not to be commended. If Bob bought that with cash, good on you, Bob. You've done the right thing and we should all be supportive and we should all pat you on the back for that. But when somebody buys something with debt, don't commend them on it and don't, Look up to them because they've got something you don't have. Stop that. If you don't think that way, if you don't succumb to everything they're trying to tell you to think like, you'll end up in the same boat that they are and they'll be broke and they won't have retirement and they won't be able to get out and off the treadmill and they'll be a greeter at Walmart. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things if you choose you want that life. But I guarantee that all that 99% of people who were in that situation did not choose that life. It was chosen for them. No, actually it wasn't. They made those choices of that life when they were 22, 23, 24, when they bought that TV, when they bought that car and everything else because they couldn't afford it. You know, we've come to a place in, in the world which I've never seen before. And I particularly notice it here. It's not, it's not just an American thing. It's now permeated all over the world. But everyone thinks that the word no is like a four-letter word, <laughs> right? It's not. No is a reasonable answer to a question that's Boolean. Yes or no. Can I afford that? No. Okay. Accept it. You're not being, no one's trying to make you feel bad. You just can't afford it. So well, but you see, <laughs> there's a lie there, though. The person s trying to sell whatever it is that the loan is for, they will make you feel like dog crap because you didn't say yes to the 80 month, 28%, 40% down car payment, you know, uh, you know, and then, you know, Sally got a new car, Tom got a new car, Fred got a new car. And what, what they didn't tell you is they were $10,000 upside down on the other car. And so now they're starting in the hole 80% down because that car lost, lost half its value. And it's five, six, seven, eight years they're financing that car for, and they can barely afford to get gas in it. You know, they're, they're siphoning out of other people's tanks in the parking lot because all their money is going to that ridiculous payment because uh, they want a new car and their friends make them feel bad because their friends are talking about their other friends, shiny new toy out in the parking lot, but they're not talking about the huge debt that came with it. You go right. to the salesman, the salesman 
He gets paid on commission. He wants to get his money. And if you walk out of the lot instead of drive, he didn't make no money. So he's going to do everything he can to up the benefits, up the prestige, up your hype you up and make you want that car. And you want that car so much, you'll sign your life away to get it. And you, you, you get, oh, wow. Yay. I'm king for a day. I bought a new car. And then, you know, eight years later, you're still paying off the three cars previous to that one, you know, and, and this is just a little sidebar. If somebody offers you to either buy a timeshare or shoot you run to the gun, <laughs> just run to the gun has okay. a former timeshare owner. Oh my gosh. If I, if, if I invent time travel, I'm going to go back to myself as I'm walking into that meeting and just slap me as hard as I can. So, um, yeah, don't ever buy a timeshare. If you own one, get out of it. I'm glad to hear that you got out of that. Yes. Uh, it, it, the sad part is it cost me tons of money and I never got to use it once. Yeah. So you what know, you're talking about, Seth, is what I call the $1,500 steak dinner. Yeah. Where you go out and you put your, your, you take your wife out for Valentine's Day and you put $100 on your credit card that you couldn't afford. And then you pay the minimum payment on the $100 for seven years. And now you've paid $1,500 for that steak dinner. Hope you enjoyed the steak. Uh, because that's the kind of decisions that I used to make, you know, when I was 20 years old, I was smart enough to know better, but I didn't listen to what I knew. And so I, I had many, many $1,500 steak dinners. Um, and then when you default on that credit card and now you're paying uh, penalties on top of that, uh, which, you know, I did, um, you now have all kinds of problems like that take of gas I was talking about when I uh, put $20 in my truck to, to, uh, go goofing around with my friends that ended up costing me thousands of dollars over the long run because I bought something I couldn't afford. Um, and affording the payment is not affording the thing like we already said. Um, and it's hard to have long-term thinking. And, and I, I started to say it's hard as a young person, but you know, I'm not a young person. I'm, I'm squarely in the middle of middle age and, uh, it's still every bit as difficult to have long-term thinking. Uh, when I'm sitting in, you know, in my easy chair with amazon.com up, uh, because I went to buy one thing and the little thing down at the bottom says people who buy this frequently buy this. And I think, Oh, that's a good thing. I want that. Um, and you know, it's, the, there's an entire society, as Miles was talking about, designed to keep you in debt. You know, it used to be the company store. You worked at the coal mine. You lived in a mining town. You lived in a house owned by the coal company. You bought uh, food at the company store, and you never quite made enough money. Um, and you always ended up at the end of the week owing a little more than you brought home. And that that's a, a, a thing that a whole generation of people lived with. And we, we wrote laws to make that not happen anymore. And now they're a cautionary tale, but you know what? The exact same thing is happening. Only the company now is visa. And you, you work to, uh, all day, uh, every day to earn just a little bit less than you actually owe. Yeah. There's, um, Seth, when you were talking about the guy trying to sell you the car loan or whatever, they um, they have a habit of it, it, within the financial industry of calling those guys your finance broker, and yep. I think it's a very salient term because they're always broker than you are. <laughs> and so, if you're ever wanting to feel bad about saying no, don't. No is a really good answer, and you know what? They're the ones who've got to take ownership of the rejection, not you. And it's I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm just saying, look, when somebody says, "Hey, you want to put that on your card?" You don't have to pay. Pay, you know, have it now and pay three months later. No, 
is the appropriate answer to that question. When they say, do you want to, you know, take that, you want to buy that that latest Tesla or whatever you see in the magazine or you see on the TV on the car show and and you know you can't afford it, the answer is no. (laughs) Just (laughs) get that word into your head, no. And the more you say it, the richer you'll be. And you watch... The, the true cost of that iPhone is your retirement sucking away that money disappearing when you're 65 and you didn't need that retirement, uh, that iPhone, but you really, really, really need some money and bonds to survive on. You'll really regret buying that phone. So the answer is no. Pay cash for the thing. And if you can't pay cash, don't have it. You don't need it. Yeah, and I want to I want to go back and talk about the salesman. Um, and it it happens a lot in cars, but anytime you're going to make a major purpose uh, purchase. Now, you know, my degrees in counseling, I've done a little bit of studying in this, so the salesman never has the final authority. They have to go back and quote unquote speak with their manager to see if you can get a better deal. And so what happens is always comes back with a little bit better deal than they offered before, but not quite as good as the one you're willing to accept. And the psychological ploy that is in, is done, he is attempt or she, they are attempting to endear themselves to you by portraying that they're fighting for you just as hard as they can to get every last interest rate off every dollar they can squeeze out of the price to make it more attractive. So you think that, oh my gosh, they are doing all they can for me. Now I want to do all I can for them. I know my budget says I can only afford $400 a month, but come on, he's only talking 420. And I know I only want to do this thing for four years, but five, I mean, it's only one more year and he's worked so hard and cut it down. I think I want, okay, I I can't, I, that's more than I wanted to pay, but you did so much for me. I'm going to do something for you and I'm going to take the deal. And so it makes it seem like y'all both won and stuck it to the man. But what happened is both of them stuck it to you by getting you to come up off of the number you had. And that's, it happens with anything. If you're not talking to the person with the authority, it's done by design so that you feel sorry for that person. You're cutting into their money and they're going to give up some of their commission if they can just make this sell because, you know, the formula's old and they've had to cut it with water and all this whatever. You know, their great granddad's fourth cousin's second college roommate's on dialysis and they're the only one paying for it. Anything it takes to make it seem like you're doing them a favor to pull you up off of the numbers you stand with. It's 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 psychology and marketing. So. Have your numbers start way low and just say no. No is no is a great word. Mm. I think you, it's also yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go no, ahead. I was going to say it's it's very habit forming. Um, I was told no as a kid, and it's stuck in my head. And right. so now, when I make a decision, the default answer is no, and then I have to sell myself on whether or not it's actually justifiable. And I was telling my wife this today. We were at Costco getting groceries. Which, by the way, I paid for with a Visa debit gift card that I had paid cash for. <laughs> anyway, regardless of that, um, I'm saying to her as we're walking down, you know, I bought this uh, really uh, decent sort of leather jacket over the holidays. And uh, I just realized, you know where I bought that from? I bought that from Savers. 
Savers is like a Goodwill. You know, it's one of those sort of op shop type things. I paid 20 bucks for that jacket. It's one of the best jackets I've ever had. <laughs> and as I was going around, I saw a similar coat in the store. $320. And I'm going for the same coat. I paid 20 bucks for. And here I am. I don't, I, I can afford to buy that coat. I don't care about that. But by habit, I go to Savers and I pay 20 bucks. When I want to get my teeth done, I go to Mexico and I pay 50 bucks. <laughs> you know, this is me. This is my credo. This is who I am. I'm that tightwad dude who, why on earth? You don't need to be going there and buying that for pennies when you can afford this. No, you know what? The reason why I want to be rich, I want to stay rich. So I do this because it's subconscious. It's habit. I would never go to a car dealership and buy a car now. I mean, I have. But I prefer not to. Um, my, my daughter needed a car, a car a couple of years ago when she got her driver's license. I pay cash, right? My cars, I pay cash. They're paid off. I don't want to owe anything to financing. It doesn't make any sense to me. That thing's not a, a increasing in value. It's going to be worthless in four years. Why would I want to be paying for it for 10? I mean, there's just some really simple things. I, what, what really is annoying to me is that we we live in a world where our poor kids go straight into debt when they want to go into tertiary education. And the, the day that they arrive as freshmen on campus, they're going to be dealing with a one, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar debt, not including interest over time, but all of that, that's just how that is. Thankfully my uh, my daughter's not going to have to pay for that. I was able to pay cash for it all. But the thing is that, that but most families can't, and I understand why, because I, you know, I've been there too. And at the end of the day, these kids, when they go in there with this debt-laden student loan scenario, and they start getting taught all this stuff, like algebra and math, and, and they learn biology and philosophy and all these wonderful subjects, before they've learnt any of that, nobody has ever sat down with them and taught them anything about personal finance. Mm-hmm. You Wouldn't you think personal finance would be the first thing you would learn? Maybe you'd learn it in high school before you go and take on $500,000 of debt. But no, these kids are expected to take that on and they're supposedly, quote, adults so they can make their own decision. No, they can't. They haven't been taught anything about personal finance yet. So... Well, we have a very, very smart audience here. They're very, you know, the people listening to this show are typically extremely smart people. But if they have not been taught in personal finance at a level that's at least equal to geometry, algebra, and all the level of effort they put into learning that, they need to stop right now <laughs> and go back and start learning how money works. And And it's not, you know what? I, a lot of people think money's boring. You know, it's not a common conversation. You don't bring it up at the dinner table. It's a boring topic. Think of it like a video game, right? Where the, what's in your bank is the, the score. So, you know, how many, sh- how many kills you get on Battlefield or how many, you know, whatever your score of, in World of Warcraft is or whatever game you play, think of your bank balance like that. And then all of a sudden, as you boost up your score, it's going to have some fun with it. And if you start working out how to play the game better than somebody else, 
how to hack the system, how to manipulate the environment, how to do this. And nothing here. You don't do anything unethical. You don't do anything illegal. You do everything on the up and up. But you learn how to manipulate the scenario, just like you would if you were an expert player in Call of Duty or some video game. But if you take that and you apply it to personal finance, you will be rich. It's really simple. I mean, I I wish it wasn't so simple. It is simple. That's why personal finance is probably not taught in school, because they think they can knock it out in three months and we're done. But they don't even try. It's that distinction between simple and easy. Losing weight is simple. Eat less, move more. But it's not easy. You know, being rich, personal finance is simple, but it's not easy. You have to deny your human nature. And that's difficult. Um, we're, we're already into an hour and a half, and I, I don't want to go super long on this, but uh, this discussion reminded me um, uh, of something I wrote last year after our uh, financial February, and, and I want to read part of it to you. But before I do that, I just want to say that I, I believe that every person has to have unalterable rules in their lives. And often those rules are the result of, you know, bad decisions. Um, but whatever it is, you, you need to define some rules for me. Anyway, I don't know about if that's how everybody works, but for me, I need a rule to compare it to and say a situation comes up here. I need a rule. I need to say, this is how I always act. These are Mark Cockrell's core values. These are the things that Mark always does in this situation without question. And then it's not an issue of, you know, well, in this situation, do, uh, do the, the benefits outweigh the, 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 uh, risks. No, I have a rule. And I follow that rule. And of course, rules um, can be amended and changed over time as, as life changes. But uh, I sat down uh, last year after our financial February and decided, what are my rules for money? What are some things I've come up with? And I want to read you what I wrote to myself. Um, this was something that I, uh, I might someday publish, but I wrote it for myself. Uh, and I want to share it uh, with you. And this is in no particular order. Um, but uh, for example... One of my rules is um, never buy from someone who calls or comes to your door. With all due respect to telemarketers or door-to-door salesmen, I don't need you in my life. In all my life, I've never been happy with a purchase I made from someone who came to me. Never. If I need or want something, I'll go looking for it. I don't buy things from people who call or call on me. There are a few minor exceptions to this rule. If you're a cute kid raising money for school, you've got a better than average chance of making a sale. If you come to my door offering me Girl Scout cookers, cookies, you probably just met your sales goal for the year. <laughs> um, next one, uh, much like my telemarketer rule, I don't buy expensive things on the spur of the moment. If it costs more than $500, sleep on it. That's my rule. You've got an amazing timeshare deal that expires at midnight? Sorry, no sale. This is the only car on the lot like the one I want for, uh, look for and you've already had two offers? Sell it to one of them. You can only guarantee that price for this sofa until the end of business today. I'll risk paying more tomorrow. Not only is the limited time offer the oldest sales technique in the book, but it's also usually a lie. I can come back next week or next month or next year and get the same deal or better. And if I didn't, and if I can't, I didn't need that item anyway. The $500 limit is arbitrary, but you have to set the limit somewhere, and that number works for me. I simply will not go into an appliance store today and walk out with a refrigerator. I'm going to go to several stores, look at various options, compare prices, then go home and let it settle in for a while. Things are always clear the second day, and no one wants to live with buyer's remorse. I'm honest with salespeople about this rule, but it rarely helps. I start conversations with something like, there's a 0% chance I'm driving out of here today in a new car. Or, I'm interested in learning more about your product, but there's nothing you can say today that will make you buy from me today. Every salesman thinks he's the one that convinced me to break that personal rule, 
and he's always wrong. Uh, next up is um, never lend money. I've seen too many relationships damaged by one friend or another lending money to another. The damage often stems from the fact that the person doing the lending can't afford to do without the money. When I take away the option of getting the money back, it brings the true nature of the transaction into focus. Can I really afford to give this person money? If the answer is yes, then I shouldn't lend it, but give it freely as an act of love and grace. If the answer is no, then I'd be doing a disservice to both of us by allowing money to become a strain on the relationship. Sometimes, people I give money to elect to return it at a later date. If they do, then I accept it graciously as a gift of love, which leads me to a next rule. Never refuse a gift. Let's say I stop to help a roadside stranger change a flat tire, and when I'm done, they want to give me some money to pay me for my effort. I let them know that I didn't stop in the hopes of profiting from the act, and it's not really necessary, but if they insist, I take the money and thank them for the generous gift. I've seen bitter arguments break out over who gets to pay the check after a meal. Why would you let something so silly become an argument? If my friend says, let me get the check, I say thank you and leave it at that. Conversely, if I offer to pay the check and they refuse to let me, that's the end of the discussion. When we take away the business transaction mentally, uh, mentally to giving, we're <laughs> sorry, I can't even read my own writing. When we take away the business transaction mentally to giving, we're free to focus on love, generosity, and fellowship. I give freely, I accept freely, and I choose to love rather than transact. And like unto that, tip generously. Service work by its very nature is difficult, imprecise, and error prone. For restaurant waitress provided outstanding service, she should be rewarded for a difficult job and doing it well. The waiter provides terrible service, he should be offered grace. As one who follows the teachings of Christ, I see tipping as a ministry. If I'm out with a group of friends and family on a Sunday at about 1230, any restaurant employee is going to immediately assume we're a group of Christians straight from church. And they're probably right. From that moment on, I'm an ambassador for the church and for Christ. But my grace and generosity or the absence of it will reflect on the God whom I serve. Restaurant, hair salon, hotel, the setting doesn't matter. To whom much is given, much will be expected, and I've been given very much. So those are some of my personal rules about money. If you don't have rules, I encourage you to sit down after this podcast and write them out. Figure out what your rules are. Can I add one thing to that? Um, Please do. If you've never heard, if you don't understand this or you haven't heard the term or you think you understand it, but you really don't apply it, please, please, please study the concept of Maslow's hierarchy of need. If you understand that, you have the formula for how to apply money safely for you and your family and for this financial security going forward. You have to understand that there are basic things that we all need to live on at the lowest level for survival, food, shelter, clothing. And those are the things that you have to apply priority to first before anything else. So before, even though that guy's calling you on the phone telling you that credit card payment's due now and you're going to pay it over the phone or whatever, whatever you do, please don't pay it if it means you can't make your rent or you can't buy food or you can't put clothes on your kid's back. Those are the things you've got to focus on first. And then everything after that starts coming into play as you understand the hierarchy. But if you, if you don't understand this, please Google it, learn it, study it, and really embrace it as part of your life. It will change your life. Awesome. Seth, any final points? Man, I should have wrote it down, but I had a great one earlier. <laughs> it's, it's relegated to history. She should have been there, people. <laughs> um, I, I hope this has not seemed preachy to you. That's not my goal. That's not any of our goals. The, the goal was for you to understand who we are and where we come from. And as we spend the next three weeks 
or maybe four, depending on how that works out, um, telling you um, advice, uh, asking you questions. You need to know where we come from. And these are where we come from. You know, uh, Miles is a, a rags to riches to rags to riches story. Uh, mine is a, a, a stupid is a stupid does story. Um, you know, Seth's is a failure to launch story. Uh, these, these are all, they are, you know, I, I, that's not harsh. I, I hope you don't uh, take it as it is. It's just being honest. We are what we are. And uh, some of you can relate to all of our stories. Uh, to, uh, some of you can relate to, to you know, uh, one part of us. But th- this is what drives who we are and what we do. And one of the things we're going to talk about at the end of this is, is how we're managing our money. Not because we're experts, but because, um, you know, any fool can learn from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others. I'm being transparent about my mistakes in the hopes that you can learn from them. And I hope that my fellow co-hosts here will do the same thing. So as we begin this financial February, last year it sort of became the Bitcoin hour. Uh, this year we want to make it more focused on the, the real lives of real people. And it just so happens we have three real people right here. So we're going to go from there. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to preach anymore. We could go on about this. I'm sure that Miles, Seth, and I could talk for another six hours about this. But I, do, I also don't want to just hang up and, and not leave, uh, leave anything unsaid. So, uh, Miles, I'll give you the opportunity to uh, give one last tag for anything you might want to say. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to say anything further because I think we're going to have over the next few weeks, we're going to touch upon all these topics at, at a lower level, but they all tie back up to the hooks of what we've talked about today for our own personal hooks. But look, we're three guys, right? We're all geeks. I'm sure we've got an audience of thousands of other geeks out there and they all have their own stories. And we're lucky enough to be uh, able to hear another one coming up in a few episodes of somebody who's done something even more bizarre, which I hope that people can relate to because he's a geek like we are. And I think that what's also going to happen is that maybe some of the listeners, their stories are going to resonate as well. I'd encourage them to call in and tell us their stories. Everyone here, we learn. We learn from you, you learn from us, we learn from each other. If we stop doing that, we're not human beings. So we want to learn more, and we want to share our stories, and we want to hear your stories. It's one big community. Awesome. Seth, any, uh, any final words from you? No, I just, you know, it, it, financial IQ is something that changes over time, and the more you put into learning about it, then all of a sudden, the more richer the discussions come because, you know, as you start learning anything, your first thing is, I don't understand 99% of what you said. Then it's, I don't understand 95% of what you said. Then all of a sudden it becomes, hey, when you were talking about this, it made me think about this. And what about that? And that's when you truly get the benefit of it. So spend some time, look up some resources, learn some stuff and and get involved and we can make a we can make the world a better place if we make our worlds a better place all right so with that um let's end that discussion and i will say seth what happened this week in history all right so we're gonna go back in time to our time machine to january 28th 1998 and talk about two companies that don't exist anymore (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Radio Shack partnered exclusively with Compact rather than IBM to sell PCs throughout their 7,000 stores. Six years later, IBM sold its PC division to the Chinese company Lenovo. Compact was the exclusive PC sold in Radio Shack stores for many years. In a lot of ways, Radio Shack helped uh, to bring about the um, the cloning of the PC and really making the PC market what it is today. Because used to, when you had something that you needed electronics for, you didn't go to Amazon because there was no such thing. You went to Radio Shack and the Radio Shack people were these intelligent little whatever, you know, geeky hardware people who knew everything about everything. And if they sold compact computers, they must have been pretty good. But, uh, you know, compact was later acquired by HP and Radio Shack suffered a series of financial failures and the remnants of them were picked up. I think Sprint ended up buying the storefront after bankruptcy was declared. Um, but anyway, I'd have to research that. But anyway, there was a time when Radio Shack and Compaq were great brands. And they entered into an exclusive partnership that began the downfall of the IBM PC industry. Uh, I would say the lesson to learn from that is exclusivity almost always comes out bad. Not always. Almost always. You know, AT&T and, and iPhone had an exclusive relationship for a while, uh, and that was good for both of them. Um, but had that exclusivity, if they were trying to still be exclusive, iPhone would be a non-starter right now because there's so many other people who'd be on Sprint or, or uh, Verizon. Yeah, um, but Exclusivity is never never as good as people think it's going to be. Yeah, but if Radio Shack had partnered exclusively, exclusively with IBM, you know, PCs... Uh, it would have slowed down the PC revolution because the right. the race to clone would not have opened up all of the competition. It would still be the IBM PC. And, uh, you know, I mean, we would still, it, it would have happened somewhere else eventually, but it would have slowed down the pace of innovation, I think. Okay. And then while Seth has the floor, um, Seth, what, what do you have this week to lower my productivity? That's making you seem like a better hiring option. Okay. I went back and I could not find where I had done this one here before. And I was quite surprised. This is one of the earliest star Wars fan films out there. And it's a uh, star Wars parody of cops, uh, troopers. And I just, it's, it's, if you've ever, what, and who hasn't seen one episode of cops, like everybody in America has seen one. So instead of cops, they're stormtroopers and it looks at the beginning of, it kind of sets up great for the happening at the beginning of star Wars. It's just a funny parody. It's like 10 minutes long. Um, and if you like it, there's literally thousands now of fan films, uh, but this one stands up really well. It is, I knew about this one 15 years ago, I think. It's yeah. been out for it, a long time. This YouTube video says it was first published in 2012. It's much older than that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was first published in 2012 by that particular channel, but right. it's been, this video predates YouTube. I remember getting an email with this WMV attached and it was huge. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it, it predates YouTube. So that's, uh, that's how long the video is. But, and you know, a lot of the fan films aren't very good. Uh, this one was, it was really good. They got the, the deadpan delivery of like, it's a, a cop, you know, talking to someone for the camera, or whatever it, they did it. Perfect. It's, it's well worth the watch. 
Yeah, I think this same group of people, or it might have been, it might not have been the same. I may have just made that up. Uh, did something about uh, after nine eleven, well after nine eleven, to give time for the uh, the uh, wound to heal a little bit. They did a troopers, a stormtroopers perspective of how the uh, Death Star exploding was an inside job, and everything that it, people had said about the Bush White House, they were saying about the Emperor and Darth Vader. It was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, there, there's a lot of good ones. There's also one where it's kind of 8-bit animation where the designer of the Death Star talks. It's it's hilarious. So, there's, like I say, there's literally thousands of Star Wars fan films out there. This one kind of, it was it might not have been the first, but it was it is early and well-respected in the genre. All right. Um so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. And as, as Miles said, we want to hear your story. We would benefit, uh, we the, the three on this panel and uh, we the thousands who uh, are listening to this show every week would benefit from your story. So um, do a public service and tell us your story, whether that's in the form of a, an email to L, uh, 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 at elementopi.com or if you go to the, the page and hit the contact us tab and fill out the form there um, you can do that or you can do like Batman did and send me an audio file through email that works too or, or you can call 559 I and leave a, a message on our uh, uh, Google voice account all of these ways are ways that you can tell us your story um, and lessons learned uh, whether they're good or bad, whether it's a, a case of stupid is a stupid does or a case of, of follow me, I'm the richest man on the planet. Um, we want to learn from your your mistakes and your right steps. Um, and hopefully we'll all learn together, uh, not just in this next month, uh, but I hope that's been the, the ethos of this show. One of the one of the things when I started the Element Opie production company uh, was I sat down and I wrote a mission statement. And our mission, first and foremost, is to entertain you. And secondly, is to enlighten you. Um, and, and I hope we do that. I do. I honestly set out every, every time I'm making show notes, every time um, I'm preparing to launch a new show, whatever, um, I, I set out to do to fill those two things. First, to entertain you. Second, to enlighten you. Um, and, you know, sometimes I fail on both counts. But th- those are my, that's my goal for this show. And so you can help both entertain and enlighten. So let us know what you have to say. Um. We'll see you next week when we talk about, and I should have had it queued up, but I don't. Um, I believe what I've tentatively titled this one in our show notes is debt, Jedi or Sith. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about is debt good or bad? Is debt an asset or a liability? Maybe it's both. We'll see. Miles and I have very different views on that, and so that'll be interesting. Um, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to hearing what you have to say about this and other topics. But for now... That's it for this episode of The Geek